Welcome to Adulting on the Spectrum. In this podcast, we want to highlight the real voices of autistic adults, not just inspirational stories, but people like us talking about their day-to-day life. Basically, we want to give a voice to a variety of autistic people. I'm Eileen Lam, an autistic author and photographer, and I co-host this podcast with Andrew Comerow. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Eileen. I'm Andrew Comerow, an autistic entrepreneur and founder of the Neurodiversity Index. Today, our guest is Russell Lehman. Uh, Russell is an award-winning and internationally recognized motivational speaker, poet, author, advocate who happens to have autism. We always like to start off our podcast with identity language, um, how someone prefers um, and not he, her, she, him, but as far as person with autism, autistic on the spectrum. And I know in your bio, I said, who happens to have autism? Is that your preference or do you have another one? I have no preference. I, I just use them interchangeably. So feel free to use whatever you want. Awesome. Can you tell us a little bit about your diagnosis journey? Uh, how old were you? Do you remember anything? Uh, what did you feel like after being diagnosed? If you were able to remember all of that? Yeah, for sure. So I was uh, diagnosed with autism at age 12. I It, it basically took 12 years to get a diagnosis. I, I struggled since the day I was born. Um, around the age of six, I really uh, started to um, be overcome with uh, severe OCD, uh, disturbing graphic intrusive thoughts, lots of phobias such as bugs, open spaces, um, really just loud noises. Again, we didn't really know why this was all occurring. We was having panic attacks. And so from the age of six to 12 specifically, it was like six long years of tumultuous struggles without really getting any answers. Um, I ultimately dropped out of public school in the fifth grade at age 11 due to my struggles. and due to just a severe lack of accommodations by the school district. And also um, I I wanted to attend school, but I was just so, I, I couldn't function to the level of even getting out of bed basically because every waking hour specifically due to my OCD intrusive thoughts were just too painful to be for me to be a, um, awake. So I took online classes and uh, later that year, age 11, um, I was admitted to a psychiatric ward for five and a half weeks up in the Seattle area where I grew up which was extremely traumatic. You know, I, I voluntarily went in there. I made the decision with my parents to go in there because we all wanted answers. We were kind of, you know, my struggles were getting exacerbated by the fact that there were no answers being given as to why I was struggling. So we went in there hoping, you know, this hospital stay would be accommodating, would be individualized, you know, it'd be person-centered. And it was very old school. It was being like in the 1950s, uh, you know, psych ward. It was, it was very traumatic. A lot of just just really indecent um, practices. Um, so I was discharged after five and a half weeks uh, with no diagnosis. Um, basically, you know, they just had enough of me, needed room for a new patient. I was taken up a bed. So they just basically said good luck to me. And then um, about six months after that, I saw my pediatrician and my mom was relaying to him the, uh, the hospital experience. And my pediatrician brought up, oh, have you ever thought about autism? And so he referred us to the University of Washington's Autism Center, where after about two days of testing, I was diagnosed with autism, which came as a very, you know, I, I was glad to have something tangible to hold on to, some closure as to why I was struggling so much. So we very much welcomed the diagnosis because we felt like we finally could have a game plan of sorts. And did that help with getting accommodation at school? Like, did you go back to school after that? Uh, I'll answer the first part. Uh, no, it did not help at all. <laughs> I, I tried to go back to school. I had an IEP now, um, but this was at a middle school that I had yet to attend since I dropped out of elementary school. 
And again, just, uh, you know, I was that stereotypical autistic kid. I was in the corner. They put me in the classroom. I was in the corner of the room. I had my hood on. I wasn't making eye contact. I was sucking my thumb and I wouldn't talk to anybody because I was so just afraid to speak to anybody other than my parents. Um, and so they didn't know what to do with me. You know, I was basically shut down. I was like a, num a computer that was unplugged. And so I was not there. You know, the Greek etymology behind the word autism is basically a, a state of self. And that was very much how I would describe myself. I was very much prisoner inside my own body, basically, due to just being so overstimulated and scared of the outside world. So uh, I had an IEP, you know, my parents really demanded a lot of requests, very simple requests, you know, such as, you know, just extra time to do my work, gradually moving me into the, the room instead of just forcing me to be in the classroom right away. Um, but again, it was like the teachers, they basically just sat in the IEP meeting just because they had to. There was no real intention to help me. And ultimately, they decided to just stick me in the principal's office, um, which, you know, I welcomed because I didn't want to be in the classroom because kids were coming up to me asking me questions like I was a caged animal and I didn't have the wherewithal or the the courage to respond. So I welcomed being in the principal's office because I was by myself. But but then a teacher would walk by and see this kid with his hood on um, in the principal's office sleeping because I was heavily sedated. I didn't get the right medication. So they just sedated the hell out of me. And there's a pile of work in front of me. I was sleeping and the te a random teacher would walk by, see that kid, you know, see me in there and think I got in trouble for something and wake me up and berate me, asking me what I did wrong to get there, get into the principal's office. And again, I, I just bit by bit, I just subtly degraded every day as a human and as an individual. And I didn't, again, stand up for myself because I was already so scared. So six months of that, just staying in the principal's office. Um, and then after that, we just had enough. And, you know, I we pulled me out of the public school system, started taking online classes at home. And then and then after a year, I, after a year, I did take uh, spent two years in a specialty school, um, which helped a lot. You know, that was the first time I could really trust, felt like I could trust a teacher. I mean, they met me where I was. I remember the first day I went there, I got stuck in the hallway. I was holding on to my mom's side for dear life. I was so anxious. And the teacher came out to meet me in the hallway and just her doing that, you know, kind of coming into my world. Um, that showed me that, you know, she genuinely and sincerely wanted to help me. So that was a great experience. Um, ultimately, I tried to mainstream back into public school after that. Again, went horribly wrong, very traumatic. And so from the age of 14 onward, I just uh, took online classes and uh, really lost contact with the outside world. Obviously, you seem to be successful now. You you got somewhere, right? Once it like got figured out, many people see their autism as a gift. Do you see yours as a gift? I, I mean, I, I also see the silver lining in everything, you know, thank God I'm an optimist and I can do that. Otherwise I probably would have given up. Um, I don't, I see, I, I say autism is a gift that is extremely difficult to unwrap. I'm still trying to unwrap it. It's just, you know, it's a very, <laughs> it, and sometimes I don't like this gift, right? Sometimes I abhor having autism, but I still feel that it's a gift, much like that ugly sweater you get from your aunt, even if you don't like it, it's still a gift, right? So I fully believe anything <laughs> in my life. No matter if I like it or not, I, I believe life is a gift for each and every one of us. That doesn't mean I wake up every day proud to be autistic. Um, I mean, I'm proud to be Russell. I'm proud to be human. I'm proud of myself. But autism has been a source of great pain and trauma in my life. Um, so some days I love it when I'm on top of the world. And then there are other days where I'm in the depths of autistic hell. And, you know, I, I really abhor it. Um, so it's an ever it's an ongoing uh, challenge for me to accept that part of me that still um, reminds me every, every now and then it tackles me from behind and says, Russell, don't forget, I'm still here. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to be hard to get rid of and I won't get rid of it. But it's uh, I definitely don't think of autism as a gift and nothing else by any means. 
And uh, we were just talking uh, before we uh, started recording about traveling because you, you travel a lot and that's something difficult for many autistic people, myself included. I know Andrew has some struggles too. Um, and you've had some really great experiences and some not so great experiences while traveling. I know because I follow, on, follow you on social media and I've, uh, I've read about a few of those. So can you tell us uh, like maybe one time where things went wrong and someone stepped up and was there and one time when nobody was there yeah for sure um yeah i mean travel i mean travel is stressful for anybody right and so specifically you know if you're on the spectrum i mean my gosh it's just the the struggle is exacerbated um and obviously you know being a public speaker i travel a lot for work and when i first started traveling um for my speaking engagements probably about five years ago um i was just you know i was i'm 32 so i was like 26 i was 27 and I'd really never even flown on a plane by myself before. So I was really jumping in head first here. And, um, you know, I got one of my very first speeches was in Cincinnati. You know, I get to the airport, I'm, I'm excited. You know, I'm, I'm feeling like, oh my gosh, I finally have something going for me in life. And, and I went from somehow not being heard to now people inviting me to actually listen to me. And so I felt really good. And then I get on the plane and we were just sitting on the tarmac for like two hours. Um, and, you know, I, I was gonna miss my connection and ultimately, I was going to miss my speech in Cincinnati because I was going to be, uh, I think I was apparently uh, supposed to get stuck in Chicago overnight. Um, so I was just starting to uh, just lose it, uh, to say the least. And so we were still on the tarmac, you know, they're not letting anybody off the plane. But I, at, once I found out I wasn't going to make my speech, I started to have a meltdown. And being in an enclosed tube with a bunch of people uh, is not the best place for me to be. And so I, you know, I got my luggage and I said, can I please get off the plane. Um, I have autism and I'm starting to have a meltdown and I can't stay in this enclosed space. And the flight attendant just very coldly and bluntly said, no, sit down. And that just triggered me. So I actually, what I, you know, I, I punched the lavatory door because I was like, that really triggered me, especially from my childhood with teachers, the way they used to talk to me. And I screamed a cuss word. I will admit that. But then she said, okay, you're going to have to get off the plane. So I was like, okay, thank you. <laughs> so I get off the plane and then I just have the worst meltdown that I had yet to experience. I threw my bags behind the empty gate and I just crawled behind that gate, the ticket counter. And I just curled into a ball, sweating profusely and just bawling my eyes out. And about five minutes later, this gentleman who worked for American Airlines, his name was David, he walked up to me. Um, I was on the floor. He crouched down to be at eye level with me. And he just said, hey, bud, it looks like you're having a rough time. Is there something I can do for you? And just that, you know, just that little validation. Um, I was like, thank because I was inside. I'm hoping just somebody please help me here because, um, you know, people walk by and act like I'm invisible or look like I'm crazy because I'm an, an adult male crying. Um, so David, he walked up to me and basically just asked that simple question. And I said, yes. I'm autistic and I'm having a meltdown. And uh, he, he didn't know what that meant, uh, but he did ask me what I needed. And I told him, you know, I'm on, I was on the phone with my mom at the time. So I, I basically just gave him the phone to talk to my mom so she could explain what was going on. And then he just, he, he went to all lengths and efforts to make me not only feel better and to recalibrate, but also to make me, help me get to my speech on time. What he did is he rerouted my ticket. So I was uh, going to fly through Dallas instead of Chicago to get to Cincinnati on time. He had the plane. Um, the plane was already at the gate. And he he let me be the first one to board. He introduced me to the pilots. He introduced me to the everybody, you know, the, the flight attendants. Um, the plane was not full. So he rearranged the seats. 
Everybody had similar seats, but he rearranged them to the point where I had a row to myself. I mean, he just went to all these lengths just to simply help this stranger um, that he came across who was struggling. And uh, yeah, I wrote about that um, and it, it just went viral. I mean, we we're on uh, NPR. I mean, it, it just got, uh, that was back, you know, when when I used to use Facebook a lot and it just exploded on Facebook. And yeah, I mean, we, he was even given an award by the, the airport um, and American Airlines because I really wanted to show people how easy it is to be a decent human. And that's what David did. I mean, it's like, again, he didn't even know anything about autism. He just saw another human struggling and asked what he could do to help. And then he did what he, what I, what my mom told him could help. So it was just an unbelievable experience, um, made even more, more unbelievable by the fact that he didn't know anything about autism. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I think about him all the time. Uh, he's retired now, I believe, but I, I used to see him at the airport all the time. I would always go up and say hi, but it was, uh, you know, and then, you know, I gave a hell of a speech in Cincinnati after that, because one of the pilots, when I got interested, introduced to the pilot, he said, Russell, use this experience, this very painful experience as material for your presentation. And so I, I, I used that in my speech, you know, and it was a very raw, passionate uh, presentation that I gave in Cincinnati. And uh, just goes to show you that, you know, a very unpleasant, painful experience can, uh, you know, when you look back on it in hindsight, it can really make you warm and, and fulfilled on the inside that, you know, there are people out there that are willing to help uh, a stranger in need. Wow, that was incredible. I mean, it's like straight from a Hallmark movie, you know? Yeah, right. I know. <laughs> Such an uh, amazing story. And yeah. uh, the fact that it happened right after that guy was rude to you. And yeah. you know, I, I totally understand being triggered by him, like just telling you like to, to sit down because yeah. I don't know, it's almost like people think that you're, you're faking or I, I don't know, but to me, like, when you said that, like, I, I felt it, like, I felt like what you felt, I think, um, yeah. it's, yeah. uh, it's, it's, I know. it's, just it like, it's like telling you, like, just the fact that when I flew two weeks ago, like they were yelling at me because I didn't take off my hat. I mean, mm -hmm. it's just like, I'm already like struggling, trying to keep it together, going through security it was my first mm -hmm. time flying since COVID. Everything has changed. You're not supposed to take your laptop, laptop out of your bag and everything. I'm wearing the sunflower lanyard, which is supposed to like be that revolutionary thing for airports to indicate that you have an invisible disability yeah. and just like get so so rude just because i forget to take off my hat which yes mm -hmm. like, obviously i should have done it but like can you just say hey please can you uh, take off your hat you know it's that costs nothing yeah. to just change your tone of voice especially when you see that the person is wearing the freaking lanyard especially if you're in any kind of you know customer uh service industry right i mean like that's the job you sign up for is to treat people with sincerity and decency. And so, yeah, it frustrates me that people don't do those little things because we our, our actions have a ripple effect, whether we know it or not, for better or worse, everything we do out there has a ripple effect. And that's why I always, no matter, because I always ask the, this very harsh world for such compassion, a big ask apparently, but I, I know I'm asking that it's a two-way road. So for me, like when I'm having a horrible day, I will still, you know, try to smile at a stranger at the grocery store, even though I that's the last place I want to be, because I know those little things help me. And that's what I try to do to pay it forward, because you never know what kind of struggle somebody's going through. You know, everybody struggles. So, you know, everybody deserves a smile and a gentle tone when they're talked to. That's true. You know, I just realized that I do that, too. Like, I try not to make eye contact with people. But if yeah. I accidentally do, I'm going to smile just because, yeah. yeah, I would want that from from people. Yeah. You know, it's, exactly. it's reassuring. And yeah. I don't know why there's something about people looking at you when they don't have any facial expression that is so anxiety inducing to me. I'm sure they're Good not point. like thinking anything bad I and mean, probably not, but it's just really hard to not know. That's a good point. Yeah. And I, I, I share similar sentiments because 
again, I, it, it's probably due to my past trauma, again, from the school district and, and being a kid that was kind of misunderstood and talked down upon. But yeah, when people just look at me with kind of a blank stare or they don't have any affect on their face, I assume the worst. And I feel like I'm in trouble. I feel like, you know, I'm walking on eggshells. So yeah, it's uh, a, a smile goes a long way. So what are you trying to achieve through your speaking engagement and your writing? Is it what you were just speaking about, like spreading kindness and talking about these things? Yeah, I mean, it, my mission is a pretty simple one, you know, to kind of rehumanize autism and mental health and disabilities and and to kind of wake society up and realize like we, we can do better. Like <laughs> we all have moral obligations as members of society. Like we can't just take, take, take and not give back, right? And by giving back, you know, it's this very simple thing that we too often forget. And so, you know, my, my mission is that as well as using my hindsight and my insight into my lived experience for others to develop foresight. So other kids don't go through the rough childhood experiences I went through. And, uh, you know, again, to, to I'm, I'm very raw and authentic and I bear my soul because I want people to know how severe the difficulties can be, um, even for somebody deemed high functioning uh, like me, you know, again, with Autism, autism, I say, is a gateway to psychological disturbance. There's a high uh, rate of dual diagnoses when it comes to mental illness and autism, and there's that makes for a very complex mind. And uh, it, unfortunately, a complex mind is not one that is uh, taken the time to. The, society doesn't take the time to understand complex minds, unfortunately. So I just uh, I, I want to make society uncomfortable. I always try to with my presentations. I want to make the the crowd uncomfortable because I want them to re-examine their perspectives and their preconceived notions on how people should act and behave and to realize that it's not just behavior at face value. There is always a reason for behavior, right? It's not like I'm crying in the corner of an airport because I want to do that. There's a reason behind that, right? But too often we focus uh, just at what our eyes see and we forget that sometimes it's, it's what we do not see that is much more important than what we do see. I, I had a... Uh... A lot of similarities. Again, uh, growing up, I was diagnosed not until you know my my late twenties, um, but you know very similar. I got a you know GED, then went to college. Right, it was you know the traditional path. Just you know didn't work that well for me. But once I found something that I enjoyed doing, so what tips if you have any or like. Let's say, I mean, this is adulting on the spectrum. So, I mean, I guess we probably have younger people listening to it. Or let's say that we have parents. Like, what what advice would you give your 13-year-old self today or your teenage self today that others could take away? Oh, man, that's a great question. Um, yeah, and that's actually because I'm a poet, too. And I do a lot of spoken word poetry in my presentations. And one of, probably my most popular poem that I do is Dear Russell. And it's a letter to my younger self. Um and in that poem, I mean, I would recite it, but it's a long poem. It's like three and a half minutes. But uh, I, 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 I tell my younger self in that poem to, to not give up, which which I didn't do, of course. But there are times where I really wanted to give up. You know, you know, if I knew what suicide was, I, you know, at that age, I, I would have contemplated it for sure, because being alive was not not fun at all. Um, sleep was the only escape I could get from this life. Um, so I would, uh, you know, I would honestly, you know, if I could see that 12, that 13 year old boy, that seven year old boy, that whatever, that younger version of me, I don't know if I would say anything other than just to give him a huge hug, just to give him a huge reassuring hug that everything's going to be okay. Because, you know, my mom was by my side the entire journey, you know, um, but outside of that, you know, I, every time I needed a helping hand, that hand slapped me in the face um, and it made me very scared to trust this world something i still struggle with to this day it's very 
difficult me difficult for me to trust people just because of the lack of compassion I've encountered throughout my life. So I would just, you know, give myself a hug and maybe whisper in my ear that it's going to be all right. You know, it it's going to be a tough road. It's going to be a very painful road. Um, but at some point, Russell, you're going to look back and be very proud that you have traversed this road and that you are paving a new road for a more kinder, gentler world. Thank you for, for opening up. Uh, you know, I, I think uh, there are a lot of wonderful advocates uh, on social media and in real life, but there are not many people who are vulnerable enough to to share those hard truths i think mm -hmm. and it makes those going through what you went through uh feel more alone because i didn't go through exactly what you went through but through similar things and because nobody was talking about it i thought i was the only one and i felt alone which made me feel worse thinking like what is wrong with me you know why is nobody talking about these things why am i feeling this way and people like don't seem to be feeling that you know like just like stupid example but like for me like going to the grocery store to like buy like a pack of cookies gallon of milk like that's really really difficult and then i see people like uh you know going to uh, target for fun and i'm like yeah. what am i missing here you know like so i've always felt like that disconnect because of how little people open up about the struggle. So I, I really appreciate that you're sharing that with our audience because I think it's going to help a lot of people. And you know what? Maybe you were just what they needed to hear in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I, I just, I, about two months ago, about a month and a half ago, had a, a very horrible, I was supposed to go to Malaysia to keynote a big conference that I was looking for forward to for two years. And the travel agent for the conference messed up my documents. So I got stuck in Washington, DC. Um, and it was just like the rug up totally pulled out from under me. And I had one of the I will say the worst meltdown in my life. And I was so devastated that I, I, you know, I, again, I writing is, you know, my outlet, I write prose and poetry, but I made a post called the dark side of autism. And I, I even showed a 32nd clip of that meltdown, which is trigger warning. It's very painful to watch. Um, but it just blew up. And to this day, I'm still getting tens of messages a day or comments on the post saying, Russell, you you put into words this this pain that I was never able to express because I never felt that anybody ever experienced it other than me. And so when I open up, not only do I help others feel less alone, but then they tell me I'm not alone too. And that that is this huge intimate moment of realizing we we might feel alone, but we have to remember, no, that we're not. It's okay to feel alone, but just remember that you're not. And it has always astounded me because I, I, I was very isolated throughout the large majority of my life. So in my isolation, I was able to kind of observe the outside world and society. And it just confounds me to this day that, you know, the, perhaps the one thing all humans have in common is the experience of suffering. Like life is a struggle, right? But it's also the one thing we choose not to talk about with one another. So we're missing this huge bonding opportunity to come together through our shared struggles. And, but just because nobody talks about it, we all in our own way feel completely alone and cut off. And so, yeah, I take pride in talking about what's not talked about. You know, I, I, I'm going to Wisconsin next week to do a breakout on the dark side of autism. You know, it's, I want to show people that, you know, in the darkest of times, that's really when you find out how how bright you can indeed shine. I love this. Yeah. And I feel the same through my social media. Like, I love making people feel less alone. But mm -hmm. when they tell me my words make them feel less alone, it's what you were saying, then I feel less alone too. And exactly. that's why we need to keep spreading, like, just keep talking about things, even if it's hard to be vulnerable. I mean, it's, it's needed, especially since yeah. it's rare. Yeah.
and it um, gets easy. Like I, I will say to anybody who who may want to be vulnerable but is scared to do it, take baby steps. You know, don't don't go expose yourself all at once. Do maybe one little thing that you normally wouldn't tell somebody. But once you start doing it and you start getting incredible feedback and people's willingness to hear you, it's incredibly validating. It's incredibly cathartic and healing, and it's very empowering. So I would just you know, and emotional vulnerability is good for any human, not just if you have autism or not. So I would I would just uh, let everybody know that. Take that risk and be vulnerable today with somebody you trust. Yep, I'm, I'm with you. Uh, and it's true that it does get easier. At first, you feel like you're naked, right, in front of a crowd. And yeah. then you, yeah. just, you get used to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, I wanted to ask you, because you're on so many boards, uh, the National Arc of the United States, Autism Society of America, and many others. Um, can you tell us uh, what you see with um, advocacy, uh, versus uh what many see online like what are the differences um yeah well i mean yeah there's a there's obviously a whole lot of advocates online um and then there are also a lot of advocates who are not online and you know do a lot of grassroots works and then there's some people like you and me who are kind of on both right um but I, I really enjoy, like, I don't like the internet, honestly. Like, if I, if I wasn't a public speaker, I would not be on social media whatsoever because I just, I don't like it. It's very fake and just, again, that's why I try to be as real as I can. But um, I, you know, the grassroots advocacy is where it's at for me because, you know, it's, it's, it's society isn't going to change from the top down. It's going to change from the bottom up. It's always been that way. And as a marginalized community, um, you know, it's important that we really uh act, act behind what we speak on like I, I can't i can't just like voice my opinion on social media and then not do anything about it in real life right i mean that would that would be very hollow of me um so through my activities with like the autism society of america i'm co-chairing um their national safety task force which we're putting together the first national curriculum to train police officers on how to interact with individuals on the spectrum which is a great pride of mine because I've had many close calls, again, having meltdowns in public spaces, I've had many close calls with police officers just because I don't look disabled, right? I don't look autistic. So when I have a meltdown and I'm triggered, luckily a, a colleague of mine has been there to save the day. Otherwise, I don't know what would have happened. You know, one of my fears in life is getting shot by police. So it's very rewarding work to be able to train police officers and co-chair that safe national safety task force. With the ARC of the U.S., I mean, I'm a, a lead member of their access, accessibility and equity, uh, accessibility, equity and inclusion committee, which, uh, you know, is kind of the foundation of a lot of nonprofits. Uh, we're developing um, just strategies to make the workplace more inclusive and equitable, right, and accessible. And it's, again, it's it's not that hard. It's very simple, but it's oftentimes very overlooked because it's so simple. Um, so I, a lot of my work is behind the scenes. You know, I have a lot of meetings and do a lot of travel for boards. You know, I'm on the board for the legal um, reform for the intellectually and developmentally disabled, um, because unfortunately, a lot of individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities get locked up in our, our criminal justice system just because of the not knowing what the, the social rules are. Right. Um, so, you know, my advocacy is uh, just a you know, I know what it's like to go unheard. I know what it's like to feel cast aside by society and not wanted. And I want to give those people a voice until they're heard. I want to I want to be their voice for them until society finally starts listening to them, because there are just so many people out there that, you know, are just like me. You know, there's those versions of me, whether age 11, 15, 20, 25 or 32, the age I am now. There are all those versions of me out there stuck, still feeling lost and feeling rejected by society. And so I'm not just going to post online about what autism is or stats or 
facts about autism, but I really want to do the grassroots advocacy so that things change and that it's not all talk, but it's actually action, implementable action that we can, you know, use to move forward and again, create a more gentler world for everybody. There were so many good things there that I was like, I was like trying to keep track of like some points and it's like, oh man. So um, actually I, I haven't spoken about it in a while, but my favorite book on autism uh, was From Anxiety to Meltdown. Mm -hmm. And from your, I don't know if you've read it, uh, mm -hmm. probably. So she wrote a book for first responders as well, mm -hmm. was involved with the uh, Autism Society of Maine. So that's why I thought maybe why. Um, you know, horrible looking front cover of her holding a raccoon. Um, but it's like absolutely incredible. And it started with her going to emergency rooms. Best, you should, there was a lot there. Mm -hmm. Please read it and let me know what, okay. what you think too, uh, by Deborah Lipsky. Okay. Um, so I'm pretty sure she's dropped off the face of the earth since. Uh, okay. I've actually, um, we have some mutual connections. So I, I noticed you're on a lot of, I'm on, a, I'm, well, was on the next advisory as well. But oh. I noticed a few others, and uh, Bridget R Rankowski knows you, right? Mm -hmm. Or knows yeah. of you. You guys serve on some things together. So I noticed you're a consultant for the U.S. Department of Justice. Can you mm -hmm. tell me more about that work and how you help restructure our criminal justice system? Yeah, again, that's probably one of, I, mean, I don't want to say the biggest passion, but definitely up there. I mean, again, just leading back to my close calls with police in the past and and then I've always been passionate from a very young age about social justice, you know, and just all the inequities in society. Because again, with autism, those on the spectrum tend to be very pure individuals, right? Like we want, we're very kind, tend to be, right? And so like from an early age, I was like, why is this world so harsh and treating, why do we have marginalized communities? And none of that made sense to me. So um, yeah, so for the, with the Department of Justice, I, I review grants that, uh, that help um, implement societal restructuring in local communities when it comes to uh, mental health and autism and uh, interactions with law enforcement or the criminal justice system. So I will uh, review grants to see if they're um, worthy of getting uh, moved to the front of the line for acceptance with the DOJ. And we do a lot of uh, webinars too. We do a lot of webinars on locative technology, on wandering, you know, there's a huge drowning risk for uh, small children on the spectrum. So to use locative technologies, which is somewhat controversial, right? kind of weed through that area, um, open up that discourse on these webinars. And then again, just the police officer training, but also training for lawyers, for, you know, uh, parole officers, for for people who work at the prisons. I mean, every step of the way, it's not just like police officers that need training. It's the whole, every step of the criminal justice system. So I, I've been, you know, I, I've connected with the DOJ through my uh, work with the ARC of the U.S. And um, yeah, um, because ARC has a justice center, I uh, just want to plug that um, we do a lot of work with the with the U.S. Department of Justice, and it's very fulfilling work again to be able to work with basically the national government um, and the people in national government who who want to make things right for again people who are uh, just treated unfairly by society just simply due to a lack of awareness and understanding. I I love that you're not just doing you know social media advocacy, but you're actually like getting things that done yeah. because of yeah. all of what people. yeah. I, if you had to, you know, pick one, it doesn't have to be one thing, but, you know, I'm going to say one thing that you would want, like, people who do spend a lot of time on social media following Eileen, who think that social media advocacy is the only advocacy out there, mm -hmm. you know, what, what would you like to, is there anything that you'd like, like to share to help them realize, is there something that's like, you know, 
different or concise um, or not concise. I don't know. Any words, any words of wisdom for the people who the only advocacy they've seen is people screaming at Eileen on social media. Yeah, I know. And that, that's unfortunate. I mean, I, I would say, I mean, if, if you don't want to do anything like in your own community, or maybe you do want to do it, or and you maybe you have anxiety, or just you're not ready to take that step yet, you can still use online for massive amounts of good, right? And actionable, pragmatic practices. Like, you can always, like, see so i saw a commercial the other day from direct tv and uh they're basically making fun of a weird neighbor um of this guy you know i'm not going to go to the whole commercial but i called them out you know i tweeted at them and i sent them an email i sent the email to their department their dei department um diversity and inclusion department because i was like why are you making fun of someone on national television so i mean you can do things like that that's you know not just screaming into a void but calling people out and calling organizations out when they're might not be doing the most generous thing. Um, and there are a lot of, again, there are a lot of support groups online. Like like if you're really wanting to get out there and speak about autism and you're not ready to do it in the real world, um, you know, there are a lot of support groups that could, you know, use your voice and your guidance. Or if you want to be part of a support group for it to be a two-way road. I mean, there are just so many things we can do. I, I, would, I will say it's not going to happen on Instagram. It's not going to happen on Instagram, but it can happen on email. It can happen on the phone. It can happen, you know, in other on Zoom calls. Right. But Instagram in and of itself, you know, it, it's it, there's not a whole lot that comes out of it. Right. Um, so I would just maybe take five minutes out of your day to, uh, you know, even connect with a local organization and, and connect with their DEI team and see, you know, how can I help? You know, I have autism or I'm the mother or father of a person with autism. I want to share my experience to help my local community, whether it be via email or in person. But I mean, there's opportunities all around and you just have to look for them. That's uh, that's great advice. And I think, uh, you know, what's important, not important, everything is important, but the best advice you can give people or advice they can actually follow. And I like that what you shared is actually accessible, you know, because some things in advocacy are like honestly difficult to do, you know, yeah. so yeah. That's that's great. I feel like we should have a an episode about like little things people can do, you know, to, yeah. to advocate uh, locally and uh, because yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I will just say there's so much to be done. And again, smiling at strangers is a form of advocacy. You are advocating for kindness. Again, it's it, you can be very small things if you want to share your your experience and you want to make this world a better place. You know, it, it starts in your day to day life. Uh, you don't have to be waiting around to have a huge, huge meeting or have a speaking engagement. It can be at the grocery store. It can even being, you know, texting that friend you haven't spoken to in a month. Just say, hi, I'm thinking about you. Right. That That's a form of advocacy as well, because we, we have to look out for one another. And too often we get caught up in our own lives and forget that. Oh, I love that. It's such a nice way to to end this and wrap this up. Um, I do have to ask you some quick fire questions. Uh, but first, let me uh, ask you, uh, where can people find you on social media? Social media, they can find me at uh, russl.co on Instagram and Facebook and uh, not on Twitter, really. Um, I am, but I really don't use it. But yeah, russell.co. It's R-U-S-S, Russ, and then L dot co that's my website too russell.co russl.co and yeah we just look up that and um yeah that's where everybody can find me and we'll put the links uh, in the description so they can find you but um i'm gonna ask you some quick fire questions right now so basically you tell me the first thing that comes to your mind you ready okay. yeah who's your favorite poet edgar Allan poe 
Favorite TV show? Jeopardy. Favorite book? Um, The Monk. It's an old 17th century Gothic novel. Okay. Do you have a favorite autism advocate, autistic advocate? I do not, no. And favorite color? Yellow. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming. That was amazing. One of my favorite episodes, like for real. Um, and uh, I hope we follow through with that uh, podcast, the four of us. Yeah, I will hold you uh, hold you guys' feet to the fire on that. No, <laughs> it's been oh. a pleasure. I really appreciate you reaching out, Eileen. Of thank course. you. Yeah. Thank you for coming. Thank you for all you do. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you. It's been a pleasure getting to know you on here. Have a good one, guys. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye.